0: We Videoed last week 's just message regarding the church and that possibility in front of us, and I was kind of looking at it to see if we could put it online and as i 'm watching it, I noticed that I was standing up here going like this <laughs> and I think it was Terry Owens in the back she 's like he 's moving back and forth a lot; he must be nervous <laughs> so so you 're going to see a lot of that today. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because we are in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it is uh, one of the controversial passages uh, in the New Testament, one of the problem passages, if you will, um, a passage that we want to go in with a lot of prayer, a lot of studying, thanks brother, um, and a lot of submission to the word of God. Um, It's a great passage to preach uh, the Sunday that you're calling the body to give money. Uh, It's just those two things are just perfect. Neither one of them are uncomfortable. Um, And so um, anyways, trust in the Lord as we just surrender ourselves to him and his presence and his will and his glory. So let's stand together and let's look at first Timothy chapter 2. Verses 8 through 15, <clears throat> and today's message is titled, The Role of Women in the Church. It says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. You guys go ahead and be seated. Are we getting a, a recording level on this microphone? Okay, awesome. I wanted to make sure that was happening. I um, also wanted to just note that... Uh, um, You know, we started a little early this morning and uh, worship went a a good amount of long. And so just uh, just encourage you guys to have some endurance today. I mean, we are going to get into the word. We are going to be doing some work. All right. I am and you are. So let's roll our sleeves up. Let's tie our hiking boots up tight and let's get ready to be Christians on the Lord's Day. Amen. All right. So here we go. We're going to go through the introduction that we went through two weeks ago when we studied the dress of women in the church. We're going to look at a very similar outline to help us in understanding how to interpret the Bible. Okay, And how do we interpret these difficult passages? Okay, So we ask ourselves this morning, to what extent are passages of the Bible limited by the culture? Okay. Uh, this is an important question because of two tasks that the interpreter has. By the way, every time we read the Bible, we are interpreters of the Bible. And the first task is, we've got to determine what the text meant to its immediate readers in the cultural settings. So, as we are Timothy, or Timothy might read this to the church in Ephesus... What did it mean to them when that letter arrived by the postmaster or the postman, and what did it mean to them when they cracked it open, broke the seal, and began to read it? We need to do our hard work to figure that out. Secondly, we will determine what the text means to us now in our culture. Okay, so how do we determine which practices, which situations, Which commands, which precepts should be considered permanent, and so it's relevant to us today? And how do we determine which ones should be considered temporary and just cultural for that day? How do we know what is transferable to our culture and what is not transferable? here are a few rules of interpretation to help us with this. Number one, we've got it on the screen for us. Some situations, commands, or principle are repeatable. They are continuous or not revoked and or pertain to moral and theological subjects and or Are repeated elsewhere in Scripture and therefore are permanent and transferable to us. All right. Uh, For instance, uh, capital punishment in Genesis nine: six is not revoked. Trust in the Lord in Proverbs three, five, and six, is repeated all throughout Scripture. Putting on the armor of God in Ephesians 6 is not revoked, nor is the command for humility in 1 Peter 5-6. Robert McQuilkin, who was the president of Columbia Bible College, says all scripture should be received as normative for every person in all societies of all times unless the Bible itself limits the audience. In other words, the Bible is its own authority, even if what it sets limits on, or even in what it sets limits on, what things are culture-bound and what are not. That's a very helpful relief to us as we go to study the Bible, that the Bible is its own authority, even in what it sets limits on. We ask the question, is the command paralleled elsewhere in Scripture? And so as we come to this passage about the role of women in the church, is there anywhere else in the Bible and in the New Testament that speaks towards the role of women in the church? Is this command or this principle paralleled elsewhere in Scripture? The second rule of interpretation, or a great thing that will help us in this, are that some situations, commands, or principles pertain to an individual's specific non-repeatable circumstance and or non-moral or non-theological subjects and or have been revoked and are therefore not transferable to today. For instance, Paul's instruction to Timothy to bring his scrolls in coats in 2 Timothy 4, or that Abraham was called to take his son, his only son that he loved, and to go sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, or in Hebrews 7, that the Aaronic priesthood and the whole Mosaic law have been counted as obsolete. In the Old Testament, incense is punishable by stoning in Leviticus 20.11, where in the New Testament, it's punished by excommunication in 1 Corinthians 5.1. Our third helpful tool is that some situations or commands pertain to a cultural setting that are only partially similar to ours, and in which only the principles are transferable. For instance, greet one another with a holy kiss is seen five times in the New Testament, yet it's not the normal greeting of our day but we can do a similar greeting, you know? Um, So there are times where a holy kiss is, it's holy and it's right, even in 2018, but where is that? I joked a couple weeks ago that it's always right here. Um, But then again, maybe we'll do our secret handshake, you know, and that might be a little more culturally relevant. Um, Or in Deuteronomy 6, told to write their verses on their door frames and on their gates. Now we might hang them on picture frames or put them on our desktop or phone wallpaper. Um, In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we don't see meat sacrificed to idols much in our marketplace, but we should still be sensitive and not cause our brothers to stumble, all right? And then our fourth principle Some situations or commands pertaining to cultural settings with no similarities but in which the principles are transferable. Like pouring perfume on Jesus' feet or removing sandals from your feet while you're in the presence of God. Verkler says, behavior that has a certain meaning in one culture may have an entirely different meaning in other cultures. So we're going to take a text as a practice here that's kind of similar to our text this morning, and we're going to apply these principles to it very quickly, okay? Let's look at head coverings of women found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, all right? We're going to read this pretty speedily for the sake of time, but hopefully it'll help you get the idea. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, it says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her, uh, on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, We have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. All right, so a woman's head covering as a sign of submission to her her husband. To not wear a head covering in the Greco-Roman culture was a sign of insubordination and rebellion. Now let's pop up view number one, or this principle number one of interpretation that we just went through. We'll have it before you so that uh, maybe you can help follow along. In view number one, if we're going to interpret this section of 1 Corinthians 11, according to view number one, women should wear shawls, as was depicted in archaeology, they should wear shawls in church as a sign of submissiveness to their husbands. If this view is held, then principle one is followed. The view that the cultural situation and the principle behind it are both repeatable and relevant for today. So obviously we haven't quite landed on that view as we look around. All the dudes have hats on in the room, but all the ladies don't. So somehow we flip-flop things there. So apparently we haven't been teaching that according to view number one. View number two. The passage has no relevance for today. This view shows us principle two, that neither the cultural situation or the principle behind it are repeatable. In this situation, women may disregard this situation altogether as being applicable for them today because the cultural situation has zero correspondence to our culture today. Think about it. View number three. Women today should wear hats in church as a sign of submission. Following this third principle, seeing the situation in Corinth as being partially similar to our culture today and that the principle is transferable and permanent. Since women don't wear shawls, they should wear something similar like hats. Okay, Or view number four. Women need not wear hats... But they should be submissive to their husbands corresponding in this principle four. The cultural setting is different, but the principle of submission is transferable. Jewish women did not wear head coverings until they were married. Yet the principle of submission seems to be permanent and transferable to our present day culture. Okay, so we teach. This passage, based on view number four, based on what we've learned, as we see repeatable themes throughout scripture, principles throughout scripture, and also things that were more cultural, to where head coverings here versus to where head coverings there, they mean different things in different cultures. Also, as you're studying and interpreting the scripture, you want to look at the context of the passage, and you might have noticed it when we read it, that we have verse 16 there in 1 Corinthians 11 that says, but... If anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So, we're not talking about submission in this case. We're talking about head coverings. And if anyone seems to be getting their bonnet in a knot, because, bonnet pun, okay, gets their bonnet in a knot because of this whole thing. Paul essentially tells us in the context of that verse, it's really not that big of a deal. Let's not divide over it, okay? So we got to look at all the verses surrounding the problem passages, and there's really a lot of help there for us. So each biblical writing was written by someone to specific hearers or readers in a specific historical geographical situations for a specific purpose. So our job is we must first seek to determine what the words meant to those who originally heard them and and then what it means to us today, all right? Uh, And so we have a passage that's similar to that verse 16. We have a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 15, and this passage will help us know what's the point of this whole paragraph about women and their behavior in the church, all right? Well, the point is, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, these things I write to you, and then if you hop down in verse 15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the immediate context, whether it has to do with the dress of the women in the church or whether it has to do with the role of women in the church, it's just that. It's in the church. We don't want to strip these passages from their context and just wave them in the air at any other situation that we happen to come across in life. The real immediate context of these passages is we need to know how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church, or in the house of God, because this house of God is a very important place. It's a place that the pillar and the ground of truth is held steadfast throughout the generations. Uh, The church that was founded on the ministry of the apostles and the prophets, so that truth will extend until the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so as we come to this passage, we've got to know that the immediate context is And ladies, you can be asking yourselves, Lord, how am I to behave in the house of God? All right? Okay. Now, virtually no one in the liberal theological camp holds to the traditional historic interpretation of this text. On the other hand, many, if not most, in the evangelical tradition do subscribe to the historical interpretation, but sometimes we have trouble articulating it, okay? It's also important that we understand the historic interpretation of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. The historic interpretation has been the majority view of the church at large for almost the last 2,000 years. All right. Now, Bob Yarborough. And so some of this will be repetitive as I've been re-studying this. I've come back to find that I needed to reread this. So I'm rereading it to you as well as Bob Yarborough. Dr. Yarborough taught previously at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School Covenant Theological Seminary, which is very well respected by our pastoral staff. Wheaton College, and Liberty University. He's been involved in theological education in Eastern Europe since 1990, and in Africa since 1995. He served on pastoral staffs in Montana, Missouri, North Carolina, and Illinois. An incredibly intelligent uh, um, theologian with integrity, Yarborough, surveyed the scholarly articles in the standard bibliographical references tool, New Testament abstracts. Now let me pause right there. I know already you just shut down. Everyone just shut down. I shut down. I have to come back now. Okay. What that is, is you can Google it and what you're finding is, what you have is, and let me just read what it is. That is a product of a partnership between the American Theological Library Association and Boston College. Okay. It's a database that has indispensable research and bibliographic aid for scholars librarians clergy and students of the new testament and its historical communities now what that means is we have a source it's a library and it's insanely giant okay it's not just of people who agree with you on your theological position It's reference bibliography, which is so important as we are students, right? We've been taught since we were little kids, you've got to cite your source. You've got to cite your reference. And what Dr. Yarborough has done is he's gone into this Boston College library, and what he's found is... That it was only in 1969, I want you to think about the history of our culture in America. What was happening in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, all the way up to now. It was only in 1969 that the progressive revisionist view began to appear in the literature of that academy. But then in the period of 1969 and now, a flood of articles with the progressive view has appeared. Yarborough concludes that the rise in the progressive interpretations promotion followed the women's movement of the 1960s and is indebted significantly and at times probably culpably or in a blamable way to the prevailing social climate Rather than to the biblical text. So, all that means, and there's more, but I just want to pause for a second. As I have the role as one of the shepherds of this church to protect and teach theology and doctrine in this church, I will stand before the Lord and give an account for this. I do not want to have my position just tossed to and fro like a wave in the seed based on whatever our culture is going through at the time, whatever Fox News or CNN or whatever Facebook or Twitter or Hollywood or whatever, Republican, Democrat, I will not go like this based on the culture of our time. And neither will this church, neither will our elders. We will stand alone on the word of God. Amen? And we will study and we will use rules of interpretation and we will be humble and we will be gracious and charitable and full of love in the way that we do it. Um, so, similarly, we have Harold O.J. Brown. We joked a couple of weeks ago about that great name, O.J. Um, but Harold Brown observes, When opinions and convictions suddenly undergo dramatic alteration, although nothing new has been discovered, The only thing that has dramatically changed is the spirit of the age. It's difficult to avoid the conclusion that the spirit has had an important role to play in the shift. Understanding then that the popularity of the progressive interpretation of the last 30 years found its impetus in secular culture, and that the interpretation runs contrary to the prevailing interpretation of the previous 1,970 years, which is some 60-odd generations, the burden of proof certainly rests upon the progressive revisionists. And that is a giant quote and information given to us from Arkent Hughes as well as Brian Chappelle who teaches us how to be Christ-centered preachers of the word of God from Covenant Theological Seminary. Hughes goes on to say, my concern is this, if we do not invite the biblical text to define church order, then the intrusive culture will. All right. Now we move into this text that explains position of women, role of women, function of women in the house of God. You read it, and it may sound simple, but simple it is not. While the passage is perfectly intelligible, it is nuanced by its context and by its unique arrangement of words, as we shall see as we move on. Now, I'm sorry, but before Before we move on, on, which I would love nothing better than to do, but I have to help you. There have been many creative, quote-unquote, interpretations of this passage. There are some who've attempted to dodge its apparent meaning, And so I'm going to help us understand some of those. It's certainly not all of them. But first of all, some have simply argued that Paul is wrong. Paul is just wrong. And we have some slides to help keep you guys following us along here. Paul's just wrong. Now, no one claiming to be an evangelical ever put this into print until 1975. Okay. when Professor Paul K. Jewett ventured that Paul's teaching here was in error because it echoed a rabbinical misinterpretation of the second creation account of Genesis 2, which he argued did not give enough weight to the first creation account in Genesis 1-3. Let me read a little bit about Jewett. Jewett obtained a doctorate in theology from Harvard, intelligent man, and was ordained minister of Presbyterian Church. He's credited with being one of the major instigators of the contemporary Christian egalitarian movement in the evangelical church. In 1975 his book Man and Fe- Man as Male and Female was published. This work reconsiders the biblical evidence of the role of men and women and argues that Paul was speaking as inspired by God when he argued from the equality of women, but with a Jewish rabbinic mindset when speaking of women as subordinate to man. Jewett calls Galatians 3.28 the Magna Carta of Christianity. And There's a lot more to be said, but just listen to this. In his book, it revealed liberal views on evolution, abortion, capital punishment, and homosexuality. And so it's important to note that oftentimes those views go hand in hand to one's views of order and role and functionality of women within the church, okay? Uh, So Dr. Jewett understood that Paul was, he understood what Paul was saying, but he believed Paul was wrong. I have to say, Picking and choosing what to accept by Paul, the apostle, is not an accepted evangelical custom. Jewett's writing caused quite a stir, even in his own institution. A second creative interpretation of this passage is that Ephesus stood as a bastion of feminist supremacy of religion. And therefore, as Paul prohibited women from teaching and exercising authority over men, they were aimed at only the excesses of that, not against normal teaching and normal exercising of authority. The problem is, is that the feminist Ephesus never existed as S.M. Baugh showed when he wrote the devastating essay called, it's a, re- it's a critique called, A Foreign World, Ephesus in the First Century, where he wrote, Ephesus was a very conventional Roman provincial city with no women magistrates and with a pagan cult hierarchy controlled by men. So how interesting, in order to blunt the, the the pretty hard words of scripture will just go ahead and make up lies about the culture that was evident at that time. It's a very dangerous place to be. A third attempt in blunting Paul's teaching is to give the Greek word translated here to exercise authority a negative meaning such as to domineer or control. In other words, Paul's just saying, you know, women just don't domineer the men and just don't control the men as you're trying to teach them or as you're trying to um, have that authority. Now, the word could mean domineer in some contexts, but it cannot mean it here. The reason is the word or connects to teach or exercise authority, and it always requires both words to either be positive or negative. If they were negative, the word could read, I do not permit a woman to teach error or to domineer over a man. But this cannot be the translation here, because to teach is always viewed positively in the New Testament, especially in its many uses in the pastoral epistles. The fourth attempt to set aside what Paul speaks here is to argue that when Paul says, I do not permit, it's in the present indicative and not in the imperative. Therefore, Paul's just speaking about, a, he's speaking personally about a temporary arrangement that was going on there in Ephesus. But this ignores the fact that Paul often uses present indicatives to give universal and authoritative instruction, especially in Romans 12 1 and in 1 Timothy 2 8. Also, to argue that Paul's instruction is temporary ignores the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2 because in the next verse he immediately rests his prohibition against women teaching and exercising authority on the unchanging order of creation. Paul's prohibition here is universal and it is enduring. A fifth way to deflect Paul's prohibition is to argue that references to woman, women and men, or rather, women and women, woman and women, <laughs> you think it's hard on you? Try being the guy up here, all right? That it just refers to wives because of the way it parallels 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. So it's just domestic and it's only applying to the home. But the differences in the passage are too distinct to import wives over from 1 Peter. And very few feminists interpret seriously uh, using this argument to deflect Paul's prohibition. And last one, and then we will get into the text. A widely used way to discount Paul's prohibition is to misinterpret Galatians 3.28 and then use that to erase what Paul says here. In Galatians 3.28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Beautiful verse, an exciting verse, a gospel verse. This is a statement of our radical spiritual equality before God. Whatever our status in life, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, or free. But Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 does not do away with gender distinctions. None of the major teachers in church history taught, uh, thought so, much less taught so. Yet, that's precisely what feminist hermeneutics does. And then it goes on to say that the Galatians passage is a breakthrough text that others must follow. So those who think this way are following the very liberal lead of Christer Stendhal, who was a one-time dean of Harvard Divinity School. Paul Jewett did this when he declared that the Apostle Paul was in error when he wrote 1 Timothy. Hughes tells us it must be noted that these instructions have nothing directly to say about the teaching and authority in the marketplace or the academy or the public square. As we study this passage today, they are about role, function, and order in the church. Donald Guthrie says Paul cannot be accused of being a woman hater, as is sometimes alleged, on the strength of this evidence since he acknowledges some women among his own fellow workers, such as Priscilla and Yodia and Saitinchi. He loved women and saw their value in the ministry and in taking the gospel to the world. Woo! So what is a woman to do? Let's look at verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence... With all submission. A woman is to learn. Is that even an issue? Yeah, it's an issue. The Babylonian Talmud said of the woman attending synagogue worship, the men come to learn, the women come to hear. So they were to listen, but they weren't to listen to learn. And Paul is, man, he is trumpeting the the rights of women. And the role of women, and wherever the gospel goes in the world, women are given freedom and value and worth and shown for that to be so. Even that they can come into the church setting and they can not just listen, but they can learn. That a woman benefits from their place in the assembling of God's people and the instruction of God's word. And as a result, they grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Let a woman learn. And it's to be in silence. They're to be taught and come into this understanding in quietness. Now, the word silence here is used earlier in verse 2. Remember back in verse 2, the the, the people, that the men would pray everywhere. I I desire chapter 2, rather, that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet, there's that word, quiet and peaceable life. So in the chapter, in really the paragraph context, pray everywhere, pray. Supplicate, give thanks, so that you can lead a quiet, peaceable life. And so this it's a quiet life that the women should lead as they're learning. Gives you the tone in what Paul is saying here. It doesn't refer to absolute silence, but rather a quiet and peaceable life. It's not a life of total silence. It's a life untroubled, and serene, and content. And so as we will look at the context, this silence doesn't seem to be just total. It's more like what we would call quietness in verse 2, and later on we're going to see it in verse 12. The same word is used again, and you can just look down there on your Bible. Same word is used again, silence or quiet. But this time you can tell what Paul has in mind by saying silent, Because he says it's opposite. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man or men, but to be silent. So not to have authority over men is to be silent. The quietness is the opposite of exercising authority over men. And so verse 11 says, let a woman learn with quietness, with all submission, or in total subordination. Let's look at a similar parallel passage in First Corinthians 14, 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, For it is shameful for women to speak in church. So there was something going on that Paul was correcting the Corinthian church for. And yet, in 1 Corinthians, there's also a place given for women to speak in the church areas of prayer and prophecy. We read it earlier, 1 Corinthians 11.5. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So there's, there's a place for prayer in the public setting from the women. There's a place for prophesying. How wonderful, this isn't something that always is happening, but that Kayla was up here reading from the scripture this morning. She was reading, in a sense she was prophesying, speaking forth the word of God. And we see that in, in uh, a parallel passage that women could pray. And they could prophesy but that the role in 1 Corinthians 14, the role of interpretation of prophecy, was one for men. Now, we're speaking of roles, we're speaking of function. We're speaking of the role of submission here in verse 11. The principle of submission is underscored throughout the whole of the Bible, and it is the principle of submission that needs to be laid hold of and applied in every dimension of our life. And it's mostly because we are rebellious and stubborn and cantankerous creatures. that when we look at submission, we automatically balk at it. But the Bible speaks from Genesis through Revelation about submission. It speaks of submission of the Christian to God the Father in James chapter 4. It speaks of the submission of uh, all things to the Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, we are all to submit to one another. There's the submission of the church family to those who are placed by God in leadership in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5. In Ephesians 5 22, wives are to submit to their husbands. And that is a wonderful passage because until it's applied in the home, submission will be difficult to apply to the church body context. We happen to have done a major series last fall, summer and fall, about the home life and, uh, and the, the role of submission and headship in the gospel context of the home. It's been said in the relationship of husband and wife, the concept of submission is used of a voluntary and willing submission or a compliance on the part of the wife who is equal with her husband to one whom God has called to be the head in that relationship. So when we speak of submission, the world wants us to balk at it and to get all offended at it. But when we speak of biblical submission, we're just speaking of someone who voluntarily, though they're in equal worth and value to someone else, they voluntarily defer to that person. Just as Jesus did in the Trinity, when he's equal in deity and value and worth, Yet he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Father. In Ephesians 5.22, we see that the wife is to submit to their husbands. In Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And as John Piper says, if the New Testament roles for man and woman in marriage are rooted not in sinful pride, nor in cultural expectations, but in God's original design for creation— then how would you expect this original design to express itself in the life of the church? Submission is not a bad thing in the home, in the government, in our interpersonal relationships, or in the church. And so with the uh, the women in a body context, their learning is not that which comes from dialogue or from that result of themselves being teachers learning as they teach, but as a result of quietness and submission. The quietness should not stumble us. You cross-reference Paul's instruction of 1 Corinthians, the silence is simply a concrete expression of the principle of submission. If Paul was to say, a woman is to learn in submission, and someone said, well, what does submission mean, Paul? Paul. Paul could go on to say she should learn in silence. She is not to be a teacher in that context. She is to be a learner in that context. Context is king. As we speak of submission, as we speak of role, it's important that we stress as we have countless times at Calvary Chapel that we are speaking of women and men being equal in value Equal in worth, equal in dignity, but distinct in role and in function. When we read about the creation of men and women, we read that they were both created in the image of God. That ascribes to women and men their equality in dignity and worth and in value. But when we see, and by the way, that is pre-sin, that is fall. But after the sin and after the fall, you see the curse given to the woman that your desire will be for your husband's role. That's after sin. Your desire will be for your husband's role, but he shall rule over you. And that's not a good thing. The part of the curse is that in an effort for this not to happen, sometimes this happens. I don't mean that in in an abusive way. I mean more of in a tyrannical way which I suppose could be abusive, but I didn't mean it physically, okay? Y'all following me? Probably not, but that's okay. Um, and it's important to note 1 Corinthians eleven three. I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. When people challenge this concept in the home, they will challenge it in the church, and the issue is so vitally important. Derek Prime says, There is a divinely intended order in the creation of male and then female. This sequence was not a mistake. Men and women are equal in value as persons, but different and distinct in the roles that they are to play. So, we affirm the fact that leadership and headship of the men is in no way implying inferiority of the female. There is no implied inferred state of inferiority on the part of the woman. What Paul is saying here, of course, the feminist cause loves to obscure that. Again, there's no inferiority in the Trinity. There's no no inferiority in the home. And there's no inferiority in the church. Look at verse 12. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence. It's clear that Paul's concern is not that a woman's learning is to be an occasion for her to gain the privilege of speaking. This prohibition is qualified by the context. There's not a full stop after teach. Listen to this. It's qualified by the word man here. It's qualified that we're talking about religious instruction in the life of the church. And it's qualified because we're talking about a woman teaching the Bible. In 1st Timothy, we're not talking about a woman teaching politics or mathematics or how to put sutures in effectively into an open womb. It's very important that this is that's not the context of 1st Timothy. It's the teaching in the church services where both sexes are together. It's to be a male function as it is an exercise of spiritual authority. And he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. where there are orders given and there's control over man. The word rendered to have authority means to have mastery of, or more colloquially, to lord it over. In public meetings, Christian women must refrain from laying down the law to men, and hence are enjoined to silence. When we read the pastoral epistles, teaching always has the sense of authoritative public doctrinal instruction. The teaching of Christian doctrine seems to be confined by Paul to the male sex, and this has almost invariably been practiced in the subsequent history of the church, Donald Guthrie, professor, writes. So, what is prohibited for the women in the church is preaching. Look at 2 Timothy 4 2 through 3. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desire, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Okay? So, what is prohibited is a woman from preaching in the public context where there are males present. Also prohibited is the teaching elder role of authoritatively defining and ex- expositing the apostolic deposit, as Hughes says. This is for the realm of male leaders who are able to teach. Look in your Bible down to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 5, verse 17. Those who teach and those who labor in the word and doctrine are men. It's a role for them within the church. This, however does not forbid men and women from instructing one another in regular discourse. Colossians tells us that we're to be teaching and admonishing one another. We ought to be teaching one another. Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts taught Apollos in their home. Apollos learned his theology from both the husband and the wife. In Titus chapter 2, we see the older women are to teach the younger women. In 2 Timothy, we see that Timothy, (sighs) it's like a little pit stop in the middle of a big, hard, long discourse, isn't it? We see that Timothy learned the scriptures from his mother and from his grandmother. So I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to learn in silence, in the public this setting there needs to be an existing of quietness quiet living let me quote Piper on this again he was helpful so what sort of quietness does Paul have in mind it's the kind of quietness that respects and honors the leadership of the men God has called to oversee the church verse 11 says that the quietness is in all submissiveness and verse 12 says that the quietness is the opposite of authority over men and so the point is not whether a woman says nothing, but whether she is submissive and whether she supports the authority of the men, God is called to oversee the church. Quietness means not speaking in a way that compromises that authority. So some would say, Rory, if you look at this passage carefully, you'll notice that in verse 11 and 12 it emerges from a cultural background. It all has to do with Paul's day has to do with some circumstance about which we know nothing about. And if Paul were alive today, he would say, we're not interpreting it as he wrote it. Well, that is not the case. And we can safely conclude that from the fact that Paul does not argue his point from culture. Listen to this. He applies his principle by arguing from Scripture. And verse 13 tells us the reason of this role and the length that we should expect this role to continue. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Why should a woman not teach or have authority over a man but to remain in silence with all submission? Because Adam was formed first, then Eve. What? That's the reason? That's the reason. I remember when I was 19 years old and I was in school of ministry and we were doing a pastor's panel question and answer time. I wasn't a pastor. I was out in the, out in the crowd. And Pastor Rob said, does anybody have one last question about ministry and being in ministry? And, and I think we had like three minutes left in the class and classic me, right? You know, we got three minutes and I'm going to go ahead and open up a can of worms, right? And I just said, oh yeah, Pastor Rob, like... Help us understand the role of women. And you know, can women be pastors? And what's their role of teaching? And just throw that out there for two minutes. You, go. And I remember him just being like. He's like, Rory, you're giving us. That's a long, hard topic. But here's what I remember him saying. Since I was 19 years old, I remember him saying that the role that Timothy is given by Paul is argued not from culture, but from Scripture. And it's argued from his history past and the design of God in creation, the creation account of Genesis chapter 2. This regulation and instruction for the women's role is not one of uniqueness to Ephesus or one that can shift and change depending on the time, season, or culture. Paul the Apostle tells us the principle is from eternity past, since creation and from his design These roles go all the way up to the time of Paul the Apostle. He's ordered his his argument from creation, which was before the fall. Listen to what John Stott has to say of this appeal to the creation order. All attempt to get rid of Paul's teaching on headship, on grounds that it is mistaken or confusing or culture-bound or culture-specific must be pronounced unsuccessful. It remains stubbornly there. It is rooted in divine revelation, not human opinion, and in divine creation, not human culture. In essence, therefore, it must be preserved as having permanent and universal authority. He later writes or is interviewed in Christianity Today in which he restates his opinion and says, but then I can't dismiss masculine headship in the cavalier way in which some evangelical feminists do. There's something in the Pauline teaching about headship that cannot be ignored as a purely cultural phenomenon because it has its roots in creation. We may find his exegesis of Genesis 2 difficult, that women were made after men, out of men, and for men, but he does root his argument in creation. I have a very high view of apostolic authority, and I don't feel able to reject Paul's exegesis of the scripture. So, Paul's argument is not from culture, but from the Bible. Paul deals with how God set things up which some, even within the churches today, has called mythology. I know that I can't do much more to you guys today. Listen to what Alistair Begg has said, and we'll we'll begin to wrap up. He says, this is a command for the church, not based in culture, but on created design given to us in scripture. And the result will also be seen in the home. Those who argue with it call themselves bi- biblical feminists and do so shamefacedly. It has nothing to do with pragmatism. It has nothing to do with the culture of this day. It has nothing to do with being politically correct. It has everything to do with Paul's knowledge of the Bible. It has everything to do with his knowledge of the first three chapters of the Bible, which have been undermined consistently for the last 150 years. And the evil one understands that. Because now when the battle is at its fiercest regarding human sexuality, you have Christian people who ought to know better saying, well, we can't, can't take First Timothy chapter 2 and apply it today because after all, it is cultural and there's no point in us going to the opening chapters of Genesis because we aren't convinced that they have anything to give us other than mythology. Begg says that used to be the realm of liberalism. At the point of the turn of the century, it was people who denied the Bible who said that. But it's no longer people who deny the Bible, apparently. It's people who like to interpret the Bible in light of the times. They accommodate the Bible to the culture of the day. God cannot be saying it to this day, but he is saying it to this day. So Paul begins with Adam and Eve. Paul begins with creation. And he does so to illustrate the fact that the principles applied in a timeless way throughout time immemorial are grounded in the unfailing, unerring purpose of God for his creation. Is it not legitimate that God the creator can decide what his creation does and how it happens? Well, again, we are up against a problem of a worldview. When you talk to people about God, to them he's a cosmic principle or cosmic genie, an extension of oneself. God is within you, therefore God is tailored to meet whatever the circumstances of the day are. The Bible says, "No." God is transcendent above time, eternal, incomprehensible. He spoke and the world came into being and he ordered events just as the word of God says. Now do what he says. We stand alone on the word of God. And we're thankful that at least in this case, this problem passage has its own commentary by the apostle Paul taking us back for explanation in the creation account. Let's have the worship team come up. Verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Paul the Apostle tells us that not only is it a role that's been created since eternity past, but that the implications are so very important as is an issue of true doctrine, true teaching is at stake. It's so finite that there can be absolutely no room for deceit. Bengal says it, that the serpent deceived the woman. The woman did not deceive the man, but persuaded him. The role of an elder, the role of a pastor, the role of a teacher, is one that protects and teaches doctrine. And within the church setting, the public gathering where men are there, it's a role For men. It's not to be insulting for women who are not allowed to teach. Any more than it would be insulting for other men who are not allowed to teach. Because that's not the role God gave them. If anything, the men should be offended. (laughs) This is just roles in the church. There's also an issue... that many feminists believe that leadership is equivalent to authority that rules over people. But when we speak of leadership from a New Testament gospel-centered perspective, we speak of a servant leadership. And that as men are given that office within the church, they're not to dominate over the church but they are to lay their lives down for the church and they are to lead by example. So when we speak of the office of elder or pastor or teacher, we're speaking of an office. that's not one of domineering control. It's one of Christ-like servanthood and sacrifice. A couple closing points. Jesus chose men to lead. Listen to this. It's surely not insignificant that Jesus, having made such a dramatic impact on women in his earthly ministry, chose only 12 men to be his disciples and chose only 12 men to be his apostles. It's a great disservice that verges on blasphemy to suggest that Jesus himself, the incarnate God, was trapped in some sort of cultural time warp, knowing that he knew the 20th century would bring He would have planned for women to reverse the roles as is being done today. He would have given a pattern for that in his own earthly ministry. Jesus's role, Jesus's style of ministry that he has set up is one of complementarian leadership. The early church pattern. You would have expected that the early church pattern which has continued through the centuries, been guided by scriptures, would have been marked by this change or this shift in paradigm. It's hard to imagine that Jesus would have kept the church in the dark so that one day they could finally come to understand the Greek syntax and come to change their opinion based on the times of the culture. It's exactly what didn't happen. And so coming to worship and coming to close you're going to come to this church you're going to give to the building fund it's only fair that you know we've been transparent with our finances and we're going to be fair with you here as well that we bow the knee to the authority of the word of god the scriptures even if it means people leaving the church even if it means we're thrown into jail even if it means we're murdered or martyred. We bow the knee to the authority of the Bible. And we do our work. We plow straight lines. We hear from Paul to Timothy, be diligent to show yourself approved, pastor. Be a workman who need not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing it. We understand that what we call, this is what we call a distinctive. In our membership covenant, in our statement of faith, this is a distinctive, which means there are other churches out there who believe differently than we do on this subject, but They love Jesus and they love the Bible and they're trying, you know, they're trying to plow those straight lines. And so, you know, it's a gray area in theology. And so we hold it humbly. Okay. But we would say that this is our conviction on what the Bible teaches and it's how we teach it here. And we love you if you disagree with us. Let's keep moving forward together. Let's keep rightly dividing the word of God. Let's serve one another. Let's submit to one another. We value women in this church. Women have a kaleidoscope of ministry opportunities in this church. We get that when world missions happens and there's a, an island out there and, and there's a woman that just she's able to teach and there's a guy that doesn't even know how to read, read yet and doesn't even know that... The Lord oftentimes uses a woman to teach, and as is is the case of Bible translators, then the tribal man will say, you know what, I get it now, it's time for me to walk in the role that God has for me. There's times where that happens. There's times where we've had women come and share testimonies on Mother's Day and, and things like that, but they're in a place of submission to the eldership of this church. There's a lot there. I got another 12 pages of notes. We could go through it if you want. I'm not going to put you or me through that again. Let's stand together. In any bit of today's message, where there seems to be a pride in this, I just want you to know, I, just, I come speaking with humility, bowing my heart to the word, reading opposite opinions than mine, and I've taught today what I believe to be rightly dividing of the word that I can stand before the Lord with. I love you women. We love you women. Oh man, women, you are so gifted, talented, marvelously so. Oftentimes, infinitely more than your husbands. <laughs> that, is, that is so often the case. And yet for some reason, the Lord uses the weak to lead the strong and the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things that are not foolish. That's just God's economy. But we love the women of this church and there are so many ways for you to serve and men for you to serve in this church. And as we continue for, through First Timothy in the weeks to come, man, there's great roles and great instruction for what God would have for you in this church. Amen? Amen. Let's close with a song.